0: Before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about Around the Rim Presents I'm Speaking, hosted by Lachina Robinson, an interview series focusing on black women across sports, entertainment, and culture who are refusing to be silent right now and who want real change. Episode one features a conversation Robinson has with Netflix chief marketing officer Bozema St. John and WNBA player and activist Natasha Cloud. If you've never heard Bozema speak, you got to get on that podcast. She's incredible. That's Around the Rim Presents I'm Speaking speaking. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here
1: talking to me. Hi I'm Lisa Baird and my dilemma is in one year we solved a lot with the NWSL and but one thing we didn't solve which is what the fans keep crying for and some of the media is what should be the regular season trophy for the NWSL.
0: Oh my gosh yes this is very important of course for when my red stars are hoisting the trophy after winning the championship this year. Um, Okay, so we of course have the NWSL Shield. That's just for points at the end of the season. We need the championship trophy to have a name. And it should be instantly recognizable like Stanley or the Lombardi or the Shiva. Uh, Check out the show The League if you didn't get that reference. So, of course, uh, we could name it after an all-time great player in women's soccer. A Mia Ham, a Michelle Akers, a Marta, an Abby Wambach, a Christine Sinclair, a Sam Kerr, who's got the most goals in NWSL history. Um, but it feels like also for a league that's not a decade old yet, if you name the trophy after someone, it's sort of like a contemporary. Usually that kind of honor comes much later for someone as a player or coach. So maybe we go more abstract for now and then leave room for a future trophy called, you know, the Ham or the Abby down the road. So I'm thinking... Uh, like goddesses, like the Asteria, which is the Greek goddess of the stars, um, or maybe the Macha, the Celtic goddess who battles on behalf of women and children against injustice. Those kind of sound badass. Or the lasso. In honor of the greatest soccer coach of all time, Ted Lasso. By the way, speaking of Ted Lasso, this is a funny aside. So I just had a fun Insta Live, uh, IG Live, to celebrate the news of my ownership in the Red Stars. And one of the team's players, Kayla Sharples, came on. And I was asked about Ted Lasso. She said she's never seen it because she doesn't have Apple Plus. So I think I decided one of my first pieces of action as an owner is to get The Red Stars players, Apple Plus, so they can all enjoy the magic of Ted Lasso. I feel like that's the kind of move that uh, the benevolent dictator that I seek to be would make. Um, I think I'm also going to introduce a team award for the person who acquires the most penalty cards in a season because that is something I had a little bit of a habit of doing in my field hockey days. I think I got a yellow card every game my senior year, which I still contend has nothing to do with me being dirty or illegal. It's just that I was six feet tall and people kept running into me and they would fall over and then I would get a penalty. It was actually bullshit. And I've talked about this at length uh Moving on. If you've got ideas of names for the Sarah Spain Penalty Award, or obviously more importantly for the NWSL Championship Trophy, let me know. I want to hear them. I want to share them with Lisa at Sarah Spain on Twitter. That's what she said. Happy International Women's Day. This is the second in five straight weeks of incredible female guests from different industries and positions in celebration of Women's History Month. And you'll notice this podcast is dropping on a Monday instead of a Tuesday to coincide with International Women's Day. And I want to mention, I noticed the theme this year, which you can find info and resources about on InternationalWomensDay.com, is hashtag choose to challenge. says, quote, A challenged world is an alert world, and from challenge comes change. So let's all choose to challenge. How will you help forge a gender-equal world? Celebrate women's achievement, raise awareness against bias, take action for equality. This is a spectacular theme because it asks us to recognize what we've been told and what we've always believed isn't necessarily right or fair. That includes the idea that women or minorities must compete with each other for a few spots instead of making room for all of us. Abby Wambach actually wrote in her book, Wolfpack, quote, maintaining the illusion of scarcity is how power keeps women competing for the singular seat at the old table instead of uniting and building a new, bigger table. We got to keep analyzing and rethinking these things and changing and evolving and understanding the ways that society has ingrained in us ideas for centuries that no longer serve us. So Abby and the NWSL is part of that. My guest this week is in charge over there. So this is the perfect synergy here. Lisa Baird, the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, is my guest today. That's right. This is a commish and commish podcast. And on the heels of my big announcement joining as part of the ownership group for the Red Stars, I talked to the woman in charge about the league now, where she'd like to take it, becoming a commissioner mere days before the pandemic hit, her takeaways from the big ratings leap last year, and a bunch of other hot button topics in the NWSL. I think you guys are going to love this.
1: That's what she said. A momentous
0: occasion here on That's What She Said. The first ever meeting of commissioner minds. And so let's start with the most obvious thing, Lisa, which is I saw you in a social media post wearing a commish T-shirt. Now, I happen to have my hands on a custom hat that says the commish. It looks a little bit like the Cubs logo. If you didn't look closely enough, you might think it's a Cubs hat when in fact it says the commish can we arrange for a swap do you have extras of the commish shirt
1: that might be swapped in exchange for the hat the answer is yes i don't have an extra but i'm going to get one made for you sarah and from now on it'll be a very very good thing to have a commish t-shirt so they're personally made and uh, i'm going to get one made for you um we'll exchange addresses <laughs> after the call after the podcast over and uh, it'll be on your way perfect Okay. Now that we got the important
0: stuff out of the way, let's get to who you were before you were the commish. Um, I read that you grew up in the Caribbean and Venezuela before New York. How old were you during those times? And was it particularly
1: formative? Oh, yeah. I was born in the Caribbean in a small island called Aruba. And at the time, there was literally nothing there. They didn't, they had nothing. Goats, beautiful beaches, couple palm trees, a lot of cactus. And it was an incredibly wild childhood you know we were just let loose to wander all the time beaches and swimming and we got into all kinds of innocent trouble but like you know is the time when your parents sent you outdoors and said "See you around see you for dinner and you foraged for your lunch. That's crazy so what yes, what
0: what reason did you have for being in Aruba?
1: So my dad worked for um an energy company and they had a refinery, um, down there. And then, um, he kind of would moved up. It was Exxon. It was what pre, what, what, what Exxon was before it was Exxon. (laughs) And he moved up and we got transferred to Venezuela and I lived in Venezuela, which was a completely different experience until I was 12 years old and then, then moved to the States for the first time. So Spanish speaking Lisa? Yes. Sí, un wow. poquito. <laughs> Me olvidé mucho. Me olvidé mucho. Pero nació en Aruba y um, yo creo que Venezuela para cinco años. So, yes, I could slowly speak Spanish, but I'd, I'd have to practice a little.
0: Yo tengo un perro. Yes.
1: That is, uh, that's ah, that's mine. And I can que, say the days of the week. Yeah, good.
0: <laughs> I uh I my sister took Spanish when I was growing up and she was a little bit older so of course just to be different I was like no I'm going to speak French even uh, though my last name is Spain and even though it would have been far more useful to speak very Spanish. Sarah, I'm baffled. <laughs> yes, it was a baffling choice. <laughs> it's a baffling um, choice.
2: Where did, did you grow up? Where did you grow up, up?
0: About
1: 45 minutes north of Chicago, Lake Forest. Ah. Uh, beautiful. So you've been a sports fan, like from birth, Chicago fans, like, uh, you know, all fans have their quirkiness, but Chicago, what I love about Chicago fans is they love all sports. Like if you go to Philly, there's only certain sports that Philly fans like, but Chicago fans, they love it all. Marathon, football, baseball, bring it, hockey, everything.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's part of the Midwest, like the, the corn fed it's the weather, right? So it keeps us going during the winter to have things to root on. And then we're just super active and active in those very traditional ways. You know, I lived in LA for six years and people are super active, but a lot of it is surfing and hiking and being outdoorsy. And in Chicago, there isn't as much space for that. So a lot of it, or even in the Midwest in general, a lot of it is flat area for go out and play baseball and flag football and basketball in your backyard and everything else. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, okay. So you end up though in Manhasset in New York for high school. So what kind of transition was that? Because 12 is a very formative year Oh. Yeah. that right before you become an obnoxious
1: bratty teenager. So from Venezuela to New York, what was that like? It was actually a hard transition. Here's an example. It encapsulates it. When I moved from Venezuela to New York, I did not own a pair of jeans. And you cannot imagine yeah. how much fun people made of me because I just had like at that time appropriate. I'd skirts and slacks is what they called them and it, that's what they called them. And I did no jeans. And I was like,, Hor- I didn't know what jeans. like I didn't know you could <laughs> have them and wear them to school. So like I quickly adapted
0: though. I, this is I have like me arriving say. at Cornell University without the Billy Joel double album Best Of. <laughs> exactly. I learned immediately I, w- I would not be accepted among the ranks of New Yorkers and their brethren unless I immediately understood the references of Bottle of Red, Bottle of White. So Exactly.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> okay, so you end up playing a ton of sports, though. Field hockey, lacrosse, volleyball. Were those things that you had played growing up, or did you arrive in the States and think,
1: holy cow, look at all these things I, I can do? You know what? I... That's exactly what happened. And you know what, you have to kind of say seriously, the American school system is so great because it gives, you know, particularly girls, but it gives girls and boys such a breadth. So I got to try everything. Actually, the only sport I ever played before I got to the U.S. was golf, which if you're a middle schooler is a completely irrelevant sport to play, (laughs) right? Now I wish I was better at it. Um, But I was like, oh, this is super cool. And, you know, to this day, you know, our secondary school system, our collegiate system just gives the U.S. such a leg up in terms of sports um, worldwide. And uh, it was really fun. I think my favorite was volleyball. And I did um, go to Penn State and I tried to walk on to the volleyball team and let's just say it didn't work out. <laughs>
0: good good programs there, though. So oh I mean, yeah,
1: you could still be a great athlete and, and not quite make the
0: cut. I was a field hockey player as well. I got recruited for a couple colleges. Ugh. But um, the thing for that sport especially is they go to almost universally turf at the collegiate level. And I was a track athlete in college. So I had the speed, oh. but it was the ball handling, um, especially at my height. Being six feet and bent in half, trying to, to make yeah. the same moves on turf. Uh, Wait, a lot what of- was...
1: What was your distance in track, track and field? Uh, heptathlon.
0: I, being in the Olympic world, I know what the heptathlon yes, is. Very few people do. <laughs> Jack of all trades, master of none, is essentially my <laughs> not only like unifying uh, message of my life, but sport as well. It's, it's. I'm not the best at anything, but I'm pretty good at everything.
1: That's pretty cool. And remember when decathletes were yeah. the
0: pinnacle of yes. athleticism? Yes, still should be considered. Yeah. so we need to get. I agree. We need to get a woman on the U.S. team that's got the kind of cachet of a Bruce Jenner yeah. back in the day, because it is a remarkable diversity <laughs> of events that you have to be able to to do. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I I, I absolutely it's loved it. Cool. So, you, so you play all those sports. You end up at Penn State. You don't end up playing at Penn State, but obviously you've got that background and that love. You get your BA and your MBA there. Um, and it sounds like you just immediately jumped into the business world right after school with Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble,
1: traditional marketing. Is that
0: kind of where you had always envisioned yourself working? Yeah.
1: You know, um, I think uh, when you come out of school, whether it's undergrad or or graduate school, you know, people think that you should know what you you're going to do for the rest of your life. There's such pressure. And I, I think particularly today, I see it with my kids and, I really didn't know what I wanted to do or what I was good at. Um, and I was really lucky that I got interviewed and recruited by Procter Gamble. It was complete, utter luck. You know, I'd like to say that I was particularly skilled or something, but I think at that point mm-hmm. in time, I was just lucky to get into a big uh, company that had an incredible training program and lots of other college and and MBA graduates coming in and joining it. And it was really a formative experience for me. Once, once you join a company like a Procter or IBM or even J&J, you connect into an alumni group. And you know this from Cornell, like those alumni groups, they're not, I don't want to say they're transactional, like Oh, great for networking, but they, you belong to something. And as an expat that moved a lot around a lot, et cetera, and always was having to introduce myself to people like I do value that P and G experience a lot. And to this day, some of my best friends are people that um, I met there. Yeah. I'm
0: looking at your resume and it's, it's varied and, and super impressive obviously. So GM, IBM, Uh, the NFL, where you were senior VP of marketing and consumer products, Um, then the chief marketing officer for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, which you mentioned, and then CMO for New York Public Radio, which is a wild little twist there, um, before becoming the commissioner in March, or I guess February was officially last year. Of all those different experiences, which ones maybe set you up for this job the most? Or or maybe was there a through-line the whole time of wanting to get back into sports.
1: You know, it there like that when I look at my career, just simply put, the first part of it was, you know, traditional big companies, very marketing oriented, general management. And I learned a lot about problem solving and learned skills and analytics and learned how to lead people and become a general manager. The second the middle part of my career, which was really IBM and General Motors, those are big, complicated, complicated companies that tackle big, big issues. So at IBM, it was super cool because I love techie things. You know, we would work with Nobel Prize winners in science. And I, to this day, have such a respect for engineers and scientists because they grapple with big problems, you know, at IBM, you know, they worked on changing, you know, European currency to the Euro. That's really thorny and hard to do. But um, I got recruited out of IBM to go to the NFL. And I was like, this is just a really strange turn to go into sports at this time. Although I'd run a lot of sports sponsorships at my other companies. And, um, You know, someone explained to me, the person that recruited me into it said, you'll never regret it because in sports, you'll get the chance to not only um, work on incredibly interesting things, but you'll get the chance to shape culture and conversation. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I think it has to do with how important sports are to people around the world. You get a chance to kind of be that, that at moments in time where you can, you can shape something that's even bigger than your sport. And the first thing I worked on when I was at the NFL was reopening, um, getting the Saints to come back and stay in New Orleans after Katrina. And I had the privilege, honestly, to work with Paul Tagliabue, who I still count as one of my most important mentors in sport, on how he did that. Like, let's face it, it was the Bensons and the ownership group and Paul Tagliabue that didn't, but I got to work with him and do a small part of it. And I have to say sitting on that sideline and watching the Superdome reopen at home after Katrina was like an amazing moment in sports where you kind of feel the power of sports. Um, And that's when I got hooked on sports.
0: It's so true. And I think if you've been in sports your whole life, you take it for granted. But if you step away, even for a moment, you realize that most big businesses and companies do not intersect with the everyday lives of people outside of buying their products or using their services. But the culture, the people involved, the names, the people in charge, nobody knows them. Um, But in sports, you have this vast cross-section of every race and gender and religion and ethnicity and sexuality, all of them in the same building, rooting for the same thing. And They're a captive audience for big ideas that they might not otherwise invest their time in, if not attached to an athlete or event that they love. And so there is a ton of power there that I think can be wielded both uh, positively and negatively. And we've seen that. And so uh, that is an interesting thing to sort of set up that that aspect of your career. So you end up. Um, taking all those experiences and uh, interviewing and winning the position of the commissioner of the NWSL in February of 2020. So last year. Before we get to the sci-fi movie COVID stuff that, that becomes a challenge, let's start with real world normal challenges. The league commissioner job had been vacant for three years before you took over. So when you step into that role before we get to COVID, what are the biggest
1: challenges to taking over a job that's been that's been empty? Well, I think I think it was setting a, a strategy for the league to, you know, as I say, we're nine years old now, and we'll be ten next year. It'll be our tenth anniversary. But the, the strategy to um, really take the the league and solidify the infrastructure and the stability of the league. I mean, we're first of all we're women's sports. Second of all, we're independent. We are not formally associated with any men's league, even though we have a great collaborative relationship with the MLS. And we really have to figure out how to be an independent, self-sustaining league. And that's a lot of work. And that's the lot of work that I, I laid out in my vision, not only financials, but literally getting all the operations and the rules, modernizing the rules, all the things that you need to do, um, you know, as you grow up as a league. And of course, it got put on hold the second day. But we're we're grappling with it now, Sarah. We're really doing the work that was overdue that needs to be done to, to kind of be a um, well structured, well running, executing excellently league. Yeah, that's the big balance for women's
0: sports is there needs to be a true investment in capital and attention and marketing and everything in order to see a result, but sustainability has to be on the mind as well. You look at something even like the XFL, right? Which Is beyond frustrating to me that these efforts to keep having yet another football league that blow through hundreds of millions of dollars and don't make it through a season. Meanwhile, there's the length of time now, almost a decade, for a league like the NWSL, where you want to get to those people and say, "Throw some of that money this way. We know how to use it. We know how to run it, and we're going to keep building in a way that's commensurate with the attention we're getting, so that we're not overcommitting." But you know, also not the, the problem with women's sports is of course always undercommitting. It's giving our daughters a dollar and our sons five, and then asking why the sons' businesses are growing more. Well, you invested more in them and they've been around longer, right? So it's an interesting thing that, you know, you do step into a league that's successful in relation to every other effort for women's pros uh, football or soccer in the States, but is still very new. Okay, so like you said, technically you're hired in February, but you're on the job for basically two days when the NBA shuts down in the middle of a game and that sort of becomes the first domino. What are then the biggest challenges?
1: I think, you know, it, I have to tell you, I mean, and, and it'll be really interesting. I hope I hope, sports journalists take a moment around this anniversary of the, the pandemic to kind of deal with the sobering reality. And I've pointed this out. I, I didn't see another industry that reacted as swiftly and decisively as the sports industry to the onset of the pandemic, obviously starting with the NBA canceling that game, but the entire, the entire sports industry shut down in 24 hours. And I'm, I don't think I'm really exaggerating that. And I think they understood for whatever reason, the magnitude of what was going to happening just more swiftly um, than others. When you look up from that first week or so where we kind of suspended things and we were trying to look it around and I started to look at it. I think the hard part for me was I kept looking around for a playbook. I kept looking around for the rules. How are we going to get out of this? And, and what I realized, um, you know, quickly into this was we had to invent our own for who we were as a league, where we were and what we're doing. And I think essentially, every property or league did that. You know, we all came up with some similar things in terms of medical protocols because we were all using science to guide us, but there were very different approaches across all the leagues. And I was kind of looking for the for that playbook, and I had to realize we needed to do it. And it, it went from medical protocols to a very innovative con- competition format. Not all leagues did that; some of them just went to their regular season. For us, it was you know bubble first, but then we went to home and away. We had to raise money. We literally had to raise money to make sure that we could not only interim. Um, compensate our players, but we, in a unanimous vote by the board of Governors, made the decision to fully compensate the players and continue health benefits through the entire year, whether they played in the competition or not. And on and on. And then, you know, we I realized kind of into it, wow, we have these two new media partnerships with CBS and Twitch. How could we take full advantage of that? So to have that kind of exposure, I knew we should get in front of that and what happened out of it. And you said it best. I think on ESPN, you said bet on women because at the end of the day, we delivered the numbers. And, you know, when you said before the investments, I just ask all the people that are considering their investment in marketing or advertising or sports, judge us by the same numbers. Really? in addition to the fact that i think we have a great brand and and we reach a, an incredible audience but our numbers proved that we can be a great investment for people so it was it was doing all that at once and that's kind of the break it down and create the solutions and then work really really hard to make it happen <laughs> which we did Not as the Challenge Cup. Yeah, you
0: know, the NBA got a lot of credit, and rightfully so, because that was a massive endeavor. The number of players, the high level of production value, being an indoor sport, everything else. But the Challenge Cup was the first team American sport back. You guys pulled it off with zero COVID positives and 400% ratings increase. You and the WNBA, the only leagues to go up. And I do think part of that is Breaking into the rhythm and the habits and patterns of people benefits emerging sports in ways that it actually hurts existing ones. If you're used to watching the NBA finals and then suddenly they're in October or November, if you're used to going on your commute, listening to sports radio on the way home and then flipping on a game and now it's not on, maybe you don't go looking for it. But when things are presented to you and come up in your spaces that you haven't been aware of or haven't had access to before in the way that the NWSL did with the CBS deal, all of a sudden you're saying, oh, let me give this a shot. Oh my gosh, I love it. And here you have this massive increase in ratings. So in some ways, I think it was helpful to leagues that haven't gotten that shine before because people were much more, they needed to look for their sports instead of having them come to them. And that allowed them to see these broadcasts and, and events that otherwise they might not, that might've gotten buried. So congrats on the Challenge Cup. It was a really good watch and obviously was super successful in terms of cementing the league as being well-run and being able to contend with something as massive as as this pandemic. Um, in fact, during the pandemic year, which was so terrible for other places, you know, Budweiser signs on the CBS TV deal. Some of those were before, but they sort of come to fruition during this. The ratings increase happens. You know, part of what is always I wouldn't want to say plagued, but been a part of the story for women's soccer is the Olympic bump and the world cup bump. People see the women play at the US women's national team level. They crush it. They're wonderful. They're incredible. They're amazing. They win. They come home. And there's usually a bump where people get, Oh my gosh, wait, Megan Rapinoe is in this league and plays right in my backyard or Julie Ertz is, is right here. Um, but then it kind of fades out. What is the Best, most creative, and, and inventive approach to being able to sustain that for longer or throughout in between those big uh, international events.
1: You know, it, it it's it's exactly true when you have international events, and I dealt with this in the Olympics. There's these great spikes, and then they come down. the The NWCEL as a league has um, kind of this perfect schedule. Right. Even though um, it's interrupted by the Olympics, but we deal when the World Cup, we, we deal with that, which is, you know, we've got the ability for marketers, for fans to kind of get to know the players. And it's not just the U.S. women's national team. Like, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I've seen more coverage of Dabina and Marta and Rachel Daly. Mm-hmm. And I think it is because in the Challenge Cup and in the fall series, we put them on display and people are like, wow. That's just great yeah. soccer. We had the Sam Kerr that, here
0: in Chicago, and boy, do we miss her and the back
1: flips and the flare. And gosh, amazing. I know. Come
0: back, Sam, come back. Um,
1: <laughs> so, people just what happened last year with the Challenge Cup and with the Fall Series is people discovered great soccer, not great women's soccer, great soccer. And they're like, oh, hey, this is just incredible competitive. And when you watch our players play, even though we had an abbreviated um, season last year, and I was talking to a couple of people about this, some, some other journalists about it. I think what they see in our players is this incredible love of the game. Like they are out there, you know, fierce competitors, really just competing every game but they are loving it so much you don't get the feeling it's a burden to play they're just loving the sport and that is what americans love about sport they love those moments when there's just this genuine authentic and you know for me the biggest miss last year was not seeing our players interact with fans because they're incredibly just appreciative and accessible to the fans so I'm hopeful that um, all the governors will allow us to bring fans safely back into the stadium. Um, And we will, we have, you know, when we get the go ahead from, from all the governors, we have, each of the teams has been really working hard on their safety plans for fan management, but really anxious to, to see that vibe again in the stadiums. I saw a little bit of it when I saw the U S women's national team play um, Brazil A week ago in Florida, but I miss the fans. I want them back.
0: Yeah, it is a huge part of the NWSL, that accessibility for fans and the players. Yeah, and what you mentioned is so fascinating to me, and we've talked about this at some of our ESPNW summits, what people say they love about sports, teamwork, hard work, competition, putting your best effort in, love of the game. All of that is women's sports. All of it, because so many of them are playing despite not making millions of dollars. They all finish college for the most part and then go participate. They're well-educated. They're articulate. They're smart. They're thoughtful. They have to be people who sell tickets and sell sponsorships and be the best at what they do. And they have to be role models and they have to, you know, all of this stuff. And the same requirements are just not there for the majority of men's athletes. There are, of course, the unicorns that do it all on the men's side. And there are plenty of great, smart, bright, wonderful um, men who are, you know, just as invested in what they do, but it's not required the same way as it is in the women's game. And so it's interesting sometimes the disconnect between what people say they love and then the things they attach to. And for me, some of that stems from infantilizing female athletes in an effort to connect to young girls, which is super important, but that's going to happen when people think you're cool, even if you don't literally say you know, let's advertise and market to families and young girls. It's going to happen because they see you and they aspire to be you and they think that you're cool. So a lot of times I think the edginess and the cool factor is missing in the coverage of women's sports, the diverse way of talking about them. Because there's so much criticism, often there's a desire to be cheerleaders instead of truly covering the good, the bad, the ugly, the everything, and making them complex characters. And there is a balance there, right? It can't be done the same way. If you if you show up only to criticize And then the rest of the time, there's nothing, right? You can't only talk about women's sports when there's a scandal. You have to also cover the good stuff. But I do think there's something there with presenting these female athletes as badass as they are, instead of simply as a cause, because they're not a cause. And especially the NWSL, most people, I think, don't know that it is the best league in the world it's nothing wrong with the MLS, but it is not an equivalent to the MLS. It is an equivalent to like the EPL. It's the very best players in the world competing against each other. And that badassness needs to come to the fore.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I saw it so clearly and I think it was something about being in the bubble. We were in the bubble for safety reasons, but I kind of knew in the back of my mind from being at so many Olympic games, when you're there, with your teammates, even though they were all in their pods, and we were they they were disciplined themselves. They didn't really mix or something. There's something about that intensity of competition that's in a bubble. You know what I mean? It really brings out the fierceness. And as I go back and I look at game highlights or even some game footage, what we saw there, like everybody was like, "Oh, the first team back, let's cheer for them," and then they're looking at Rachel Daly, right, or or Jane Campbell. Or, um, you know, people like look at Rose Lavelle, like people, these were names that maybe weren't household names and became household names because they're fierce. And I think that's when we looked at the data and this fan data. And, you know, there's some people that said, wow, your fan base changed this year because maybe people discovered you. I mean, it's no accident. We were uh, we met with um, CBS on August 10th. We didn't have a postseason planned after the Challenge Cup. But we we had a safe distance meeting with them and um, we were looking at it. And, you know, for me, I, I might have suspected that the Big Ten was going to come out with their announcement on that day or right around that time. And we had that day and they're looking at, oh my God, the schedule. And I said, we'll do it. We'll take it. And, you know, working with, the end, with our PA and with our doctors, we were able to come up with you know very satisfactory medical protocols that kept us safe and take advantage of again showcasing those players. So to me it was like I mean people love watching the US women's national team. There's no doubt about it. They're global superstars, right? But getting some of our rookies time and and getting players like, you know, Jane Campbell, people got to know who she was in the goal. Um in addition to, you know, seeing Uh, you know, Christy Mewis, like, uh, you know, we were just able to show people great soccer and we took advantage of it. And then I think you're right. It's about their fierce competitiveness that people love. We'll get right back to the
0: interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Baffled. Baffled. I love it. Is it the audible sound of the word? Is
1: it what it means? What do you like about it? I love the word baffled. Funnily enough, as a commissioner of sports, you tend to be baffled a lot, so identify with the word, but I love the sound of it, baffled, and it's not a word that people use a lot. They might say, I'm confused, which has a snarky edge to it, but I'm baffled, and it sounds slightly British.
0: Baffled! Baffled! What a great sounding word. Weirdly enough, so back in the 1540s, uh, they don't know the origin of it, but it meant something completely different. It meant to disgrace. They thought maybe it was a respelling of a Scottish word, uh, which meant to disgrace publicly, B-A-U-C-H-L-E, um, or the French, bafour, to abuse or hoodwink. And they maybe even think it might kind of sound like the sound a person makes when they're frustrated or disgusted, like bah or bah. It's a great word. I love that someone in Lisa, who's had so much success, admits to being oft baffled. You know, knowing what we don't know and that we might need help to fix problems is a good thing, not a weakness. So I love it. Speaking of great words. you going to learn today. The word of the week is... Serendipitous. I don't know that it's technically onomatopoeic, but it just does sound joyful in the same way the word serendipitous is joyful, uh, of course, means occurring or discovered by chance in a happy or beneficial way. Um, And the sound of serendipity coming off of your tongue is in itself sort of a joy and a delight and something you just suddenly happen upon. Oh, isn't it delight serendipitous. Um, It's from the 1750s, but wasn't oft used until the 20th century. It was from a Persian fairy tale, The Three Princes of Serendip. This is from Horace Walpole in A Letter to Horace Mann. And um, he said his heroes were always making discoveries by accident and things they were not in quest of. And so I'm using this in a sentence to apply to recent events around the NWSL and myself. My ownership in the Red Stars is the serendipitous result of my fandom of the team and my desire to throw a party there for a game with a couple slices of pizza, some beer and some malort, making friends with the owner, Arnhem, and having him realize my love of the team might just pan out into an investment opportunity. Serendipitous. Love it. Now back to the interview. For those who are unaware, can you explain the partnership with U.S. Soccer and how it's changed recently?
1: Yeah. So for, um, for nine years, U.S. Soccer, what was, was called the manager of the league. They, and they founded the National Women's Soccer League. And for nine years, they really helped shape the league as, as somewhere that, that fundamentally, you know, um, fulfilled a purpose for the mission of of their their governing body, which is giving an elite. Um, women's um, league, a place for people to aspire to, and certainly for the U.S. women's national team to play in. So it was a good partnership, but they were very much the manager. And it was very mutual among ownership and U.S. soccer to part ways at the end of this year. Uh, You know, there was no surprise that we were going to part ways. They're not in the business of running a professional league. They're in the business of, of building sport opportunities in soccer in the United States. And then um, putting um, together the teams, uh, women and men to compete in world championships and Olympics. So the idea came, what do we do with our partnership next? So we knew this was ending as the manager. And um, I spent a lot of time getting to know um, Will Wilson and Cindy Cohn a little bit on the on the um, phone a bit, and I started talking to them about an area that we both mutually agree on is critical for women's soccer in the United States, which is to continue to build high-performance standards and high-performance culture in the professional game. And it was like that's where the sweet spot was for both of us. So we will be um, working on, and and um, we're actually working on the area where we can continue to have a partnership with them and a relationship, but it's towards um, – increasing and and making world class the standards of high performance that goes into coaching and the access to different sorts of science and data and all of the things that go on to support teams you know whether it's nutritionists or sports psychologists and that was something it was a concept that i had really seen work in the olympics we invested as a us a usoc now usopc in high performance with each of the NGBs. In fact, USOPC did it with soccer. And I saw how it really works to create elite environments that elite athletes can excel in. And so that's where we're going to be going forward with them, which I'm pretty excited about.
0: So obviously there's a, a great relationship and it goes hand in hand and players have to be sort of lent out to get back to the Olympics or the World Cup. And of course they come back and there's been in the past fees being being played, allocation status and stuff like that. But beyond that, I think um, in, in reading about the NWSL, occasionally there's a kind of conflation of the equal pay arguments going on with the Federation with what's happening in the NWSL. Those are very different things, right? The Federation is a nonprofit with a stated goal of growing the game of soccer for girls and boys, men and women. The women have been making them tons of money. The pay has not been equal to the attention and the prestige that they bring. It's a complicated issue, but that's obviously been on the forefront of a lot of women's soccer conversations. When that leaks into the NWSL, of course, it doesn't take into account that the NWSL isn't a nonprofit federation. It's a business. It's a for-profit league the same way as the NBA or the NFL or whatever. So how do you address the idea that, of course, the goal would be to have these women making EPL money, right? Um, but that right now, because of the size of the league, the you know, not yet a decade in, and the funds, it's not a reality yet.
1: Yeah. And I think that goes back to the vision um, that I presented to ownership when they were interviewing me. And it goes back to, look, I've got to have a thoughtful, um, strong plan to become a financially sustainable league. And that is growing the National League. And it it starts with some of the things that we put into place um, last year in terms of media deals and you know, we, we recruited three Fortune 50 sponsors. We need to grow a licensing business. Um, starting off, we need a trophy, Sarah. Um, we just need <laughs> to be sustaining. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. I'm pleased with the steps we've taken, but it is a, it is a long term goal of us. And we are not going to be reliant on a men's league to do that. We are very proud of our independence. Our owners are very diverse, and I'm proud that we have that. We have such an interesting group of diverse owners, Sarah, that I really think that um, we just need that thoughtful vision and we need to execute against them. Uh, you know, that that's what we do. And bringing in big advertisers and sponsors brings endorsement deals to players. Um, and that's how the whole cycle will work.
0: Well, I think it's interesting for people like me who have made um, a career out of, at least in part, criticizing ownership for lack of investment in women's sports or the way that they run it or always presuming owners to be the bad guy. um, There will be a very interesting pivot for a lot of people in seeing the Mia Hams and Julie Foudy's and Abby Wambachs of the world in ownership because decisions being made then are not being made at least one would hope, and I w- I would say 99.99% sure, not being made in the service of fattening the pocketbooks of owners. That's not why they're in this. It is a great investment and it will pay off and it's become clear just even in the last year or so that it's going to blow up. But also to do right by the players, to see that they have the same opportunities and respect and quality of care and training and facilities and everything as male counterparts. Um, so that the balance there is reflecting the difficulties in growing and not owners, bad players, good capitalism sucks. Right. And I think that that's going to be if the the ownership model that's being adopted in some teams in the NWSL and, and potentially across the WNBA, too, that it can better elucidate for people the challenges and the failures in growing women's sports. The challenges are not as simple as pay them all a massive amount of money, because I I don't want to speak out of turn because I haven't looked at it in a long time, but a couple of years ago, the effort to have a women's professional hockey league, one specific iteration was blowing people away with the salaries and the, all the special things that the players were going to get. And it wasn't sustainable. So it was great. And we wish that they could all have that. It was not funded in a way that made that something that was going to continue. And so I'm interested to see how these new ownership groups tackle some of those problems in a way that's coming from a place of wanting the absolute best and not being in it because it's a side fund project to their billions, right?
1: Well, and uh, you know what, I'd have to say, like we work, we have um, 24 people on our board of governors. That's who, you know, kind of I report to. And, you know, I like the diversity of our ownership a lot. And, and I know that sounds like something simple to say. Trust me, it's not easy to manage a diversity of ownership um, like that. It's it's challenging and, and my owners know that. But, you know, I've got owners like Arnhem Whistler who've been investing in women's sports for nine, more than nine years, 13 years. Yeah, wrestlers
0: are 13, yeah.
1: 13 mm-hmm. years. This is an owner who has been investing in women's soccer. And, you know, he represents a, like a, a very, very strong pillar for our league. We also have Merritt Paulson, you know, someone um, mm-hmm. I, I talk to and I, you know, have an incredible relationship with, and I always talk to, to people about Merritt who every action I've ever seen Merritt take is that he is, when we use the term equal, he is accessible to me as he is to Don Garber. You know what I mean? He treats the women's team and the, the men's team like the same. Portland is, he is that type of owner that can manage an MLS team and an NWSL team beautifully and look at Portland's success. But I also have to give a call out to one of our newest owners, um, Angie Long, Angie and Chris Long. And Angie is the majority owner. Um, whenever I talk to Chris Long, I, I kind of make a joke because whenever I talk to Chris, her husband, they both run a very successful uh, company, an investment company in Kansas City. Whenever I talk to Chris, he's carpooling the kids somewhere. I'm like, Chris, <laughs> how many kids do you have and how many sports do they do? And he goes, four <laughs> and all of them is the answer. But he's the one literally running the investment company and then carpooling the kids. But Angie, I mean, talk about courage and boldness. She stepped up and 43 days later, after we announced Kansas City, they were in preseason training. They were in preseason with a coach, a coaching staff, a roster, you know, uh, players in apartments, a smooth transition. I'm sure it wasn't all smooth, but Angie Long (laughs) is the type of like really, really smart, strategic, you know, invested owner in an incredible market in Kansas City. So I like the diversity of ownership we have even though they definitely are challenging and and don't move always right. as one. That I'll say that. Well, I was going to say yeah, I mean if you've got one team
0: that's essentially got one owner and you've got another that's got 60 and you've got another it's it's a, yeah. it's a wild task for you. Speaking of Kansas City, a lot of excitement around that team, um, particularly Patrick Mahomes' fiance Brittany Matthews, becoming part of the ownership group. But also, you know, there's sadness there and a really great Utah fan base losing their team. And they lost it uh, amidst turmoil. Uh, Former owner Deloy Hanson. um, And I'm curious what's behind the decision to not be super transparent about the details of the investigation into Hanson and ultimately what resulted in him losing the team. Um, There's certainly some learning opportunities, I think, from exposing failures at any company or at any league um and I wonder if there's a if there's a specific reason for not being super open with that stuff
1: well I think you know in the it, look the investigation was completed satisfactorily to us um and you know what what really matters is the actions you take out of it and I'll I'll give you one and it's something that I I believe in and have been a part of um for years which is uh, we've just rolled out safe sport training. Um Safe Sport the US Center for Safe Sport is one that um is was set up by the USOPC and I worked with um our board to to help set it up as an independent um body that was responsible for educating and um providing promoter services to to athletes and particularly minors. Um, in the area of say sport but there's so many good principles in the education and training of safe sport and it's virtual um, so we have just re- re- completed safe sport training um, our our board of governors had to take it our players are taking it and our their staffs are taking it and it sounds okay you know maybe not glamorous or anything like that or nothing that you're going to really talk about on radio but Education, preserving standards of safe sport, everything that you learn about that—not only um, for minors, but you know, making sure that we don't have bullying or harassing environments—that's the action the league has to take. And we did that. We've just rolled it out, and I think um, we're almost complete with it. And I'm really proud of our small staff because we're taking the actions necessary to make the league better. Um, That—that's—that's that's the real steps that that we need to do. And it goes back to what I said earlier, which is. We are on a mission to really professionalize and continue to be the best league in the world, not only from what happens on the pitch, but what happens in the training rooms, what happens in, um, you know, everything that we do as a league to become, you know, very, very successful by any measure of that word. Yeah, I mean, I think there are already obviously
0: lessons learned by the fact that he no longer is in control of that team and that the league came together to, to move it. Um, perhaps with more distance, even there will be more details to come so that people can really, truly understand what went down, why it was wrong and how to prevent that from happening in future situations. The safe sport thing is huge. I think women's sports particularly now women's sports that have females in the top levels of commissioner ownership, et cetera, need to be the gold standard because if they're incapable of running teams and leagues that are free from toxic environments and harassment, sexual or otherwise, then it's truly a failure uh, because they should be the very most invested in. And unfortunately we see across sports, swimming gymnastics all over the place that oftentimes girls and women's sports, unfortunately actually become hotbeds for that stuff. So, um, I'm glad the NWSL is making that yeah. a massive priority. Let's talk about expansion. The Angel City News is huge and fun. And I had a, a couple days extra to hear about it from Fowdy before it broke. But now the names keep coming, yeah. the enthusiasm around it, the way it influenced the Red Stars and my ownership. I certainly wouldn't be in this yeah. position if not for following their example and being believing in them and believing that it was a, a good investment for my money, which, you know, this is the first investment I've ever made a huge chunk of change for me to say, I believe in this and I think it's going to work. Um, but you know, with expansion comes excitement of new markets and new fans and growth, and also, you know, some growing pains of now spreading out talent and di- mm-hmm. diluting a product, um, with Sacramento and angel city coming in 2022, and then perhaps more on the horizon, how do you sort of, uh, plan to face some of the challenges that come with expansion?
1: I I think that's a great question. And it's something that we are very thoughtful of. There's a small group of owners that I talked to about expansion um, strategy, and, and it comes down to the following, which is, Number one, um, we need to be thoughtful and measured at how we approach expansion, Sarah. We, in order for us to continue to wear the mantle of being the best league in the world, we have to attract the best players in the world. So that requires us to be thoughtful and expand only to the extent where we can continue to um, be the gold standard of women's soccer. And that, that says you need to do things that like what's our player pathway? We are really asking ourselves a lot of questions right now to modernize what we're doing to compete in this global economy um, uh, of soccer. That's not something the NFL has to deal with or the NBA has to deal with or the WNBA. It's something we have to deal with in women's soccer. So that's the number one um, kind of important construct that we do when we measure how further, how much further we'll expand. The California decision was, it, it in high, It was in, it was kind of in process when I came in, but I really did the lead with uh, Julie and Alexis and Kara and, and Natalie, but then also with um, Ron Burkle and, and Matt Alvarez, um, and now Jill Ellis. But California, I think, I'm not sure this is fact, so please fans don't correct me, but I think it's the world's biggest soccer market, right? It's just a huge state. And for us to be able to bring two California teams on the same and create that rivalry um, that works so well in sports in an incredibly diverse, interesting state that has, you know, just a lot of texture to it, Um I think is is pretty exciting. And there's when you look at what Angel City has done so far, their marketing is outstanding. I mean, they really understand the whole area of building community, building it digitally, building in advance, creating a lot of not only buzz, but real participation for their community that I think all our teams are looking for. And that's what it takes in a big market, a big competitive market like Los Angeles is how do you build that fan community? And, you know, I was just visiting with Julie. And again, I, I just think they they know how to do it and they're already really successful. But I don't want to ignore other expansion markets like Louisville who are doing the same thing and Louisville like the stadium it keeps winning awards the the fact is they're well ahead in their ticket sales they're building a strong core of Fans in Louisville as we speak. I mean, I was just speaking to um, one of the governors, uh, Brad Estes, about it this morning because I'm always right now checking in, not only in terms of how safe the players are in um, preseason training, and you know, we're I think all of our teams and our doctors are doing a great job with their COVID protocols, but I'm always checking in to say how are your season ticket sales going, and and Louisville and Kansas City are doing it because those are markets that can support women's soccer. So that's the second thing is you look at okay, what's the player pool and the pathway? What is the market attractiveness? And the third leg of the stool after, you know, market attractiveness, the player pool is ownership. And we want um, ownership, experienced sports ownership, people that are bringing new ideas and new ways of doing business to the table, but people who have a long-term view. And I think you see that in our league with John Neese of Louisville. You know, love the fact that Olympic Lyonnais is in our league. I'd love to see more transference of ideas and talent um, from Europe. But I love the, you know, the Angie Longs who are able to get things done, like build a team in 43 days, which I think is a record for us. Mm -hmm. But continue. I also want to continue to see us have a strong collaborative relationship with MLS owners because their stadium, their soccer stadiums are great. And we want to continue to figure out the right collaborative relationship, whether it's mutual ownership like Houston or Orlando or or Portland, or as Angel City has done, which is a a very mutual collaborative relationship, but not shared ownership.
0: Right. A couple of things off that the Louisville thing. I'm very excited. Uh, The Red Stars are playing in a tournament in there in August. So heading down. So I'll get a a good look at that stadium and that whole setup when I when I go down for that. Um, And then Sacramento, obviously, lots of news about the MLS side of things and people's concerns about how that will affect the NWSL team. What can you say about that?
1: Well, I think right now we're in discussions with them because, obviously, as I said before, you know, having the the uh, gold standard facilities for the women's game is is um, very, very important. It's important to ownership there um, as, as well as us. So we're going to have to sort through that and and see what that can be for the women's team. So I don't don't really have anything to talk now, but I know that we share that um, with Ron and um, Matt at the helm. We really want to continue to have the the gold standard of training and stadium for um, the women's team.
0: So I'm having fun this month with women's history month by having women who have been inspired by, or looked up to my guest uh, chime in a little bit with some thoughts. And so one of the biggest badasses I know who absolutely challenged the norms and looked around and said, what we're doing is not enough, is Laura Gentili, who created ESPNW, who convinced ESPN that this was a necessary and important part of the business and of growth. She's the senior vice president of marketing and social media. Here's Laura Gentili talking about Lisa.
2: Lisa and I go way back. We worked at, on Ogilvy and their IBM account together. Lisa was my client. I was at Ogilvy, and we created incredibly good work together for IBM. We filmed some commercials with Joe Pitka, the director of Space Jam, the original Space Jam. Um, He's an amazing director and very scary person. (laughs) And we survived, and we won some awards, and we did great work. I ended up moving on to ESPN. Lisa, I believe, went directly to the NFL where she was a CMO, Lisa's had amazing, big, big jobs. From the NFL, after she helped change the shield, recraft, redesign the shield, and discovered the red zone, she went on to the USOC, and I think I did hang out at USA House with Lisa during the London Olympics, which was awesome, and the US did incredibly well. I believe Lisa then went on to NPR, And is now, as I mentioned, the commissioner of the NWSL. So Lisa and I, our paths just keep crossing. Incredibly, we also live in the same town somehow in Connecticut. But she is a big personality, super successful, continues to have, like I said, amazing jobs with amazing scopes and influence. And uh, I'm sure she's in for a great time with Miss Sarah Spain, a raucous good time during this podcast. Thank you all. Happy Women's History Month. Women's history always.
0: Just awesome, Laura. Okay, back to the interview. Two more quick ones for you. Uh, The anthem, another big topic around the league, and I think many sort of rightfully... I think I've come to the decision that I I don't think it's really necessary, particularly in domestic sports when, yes, there are some international players, but we're always playing two American teams against each other. And it seems to cause more consternation now than good, especially because now there's anger on both sides, right? It started out with, we're only angry at people who kneel. Well, now we're angry at people who stand too. um, Even though we've all acknowledged at varying points, whatever quote unquote side you're on, that it's about an issue and not about the anthem or veterans or the flag or anything else. So as these conversations continue to, in my opinion, devolve past their goal and their focus, which is to bring light to police brutality, issues of racial bias, et cetera, when they become simply about bringing out your binoculars and figuring out who's doing what and whether the teammates are fighting over it and all that. Um, Does it feel necessary to keep doing that? And do you think fans actually would care about it not being a part of the game experience, considering how up until Kaepernick, most people were getting their
1: beer or parking their car still during that part of the game? Yeah, you know, Uh, Look, the the subject of the American Anthem is a big one, and it's got a long history in the United States. I don't think other countries have that sort of history and that intertwining of the anthem and sport that the United States does. So it's it's very hard to look at another country and say, well, what are they doing that we can learn from? I think what I saw this summer um, with us, it was very, I know that there were emotional moments with our players, um, but I was really proud that we, worked with the NWSLPA and we really worked with them to give them what they wanted to do in terms of a, a point to make about racism in our country. And I think they did it beautifully. It was not easy. I think they were unified in what they were doing, whether it was to, to stand or kneel, they, there was a, there was an expression of unity in that moment, although it was hard. It's a hard moment, but I love the courage of our players for taking that on. What we found is that our fans were very supportive, even though it was difficult. They were very supportive of them taking the moment to make that statement more so than any other league. Um, our fans are, are really wonderfully okay with it. What I, so I think you'll see us continue to work with our players to, make that moment count what i think is more important now sarah is that our country's at this point where i think both sides are looking for moments of unity as you said and i think you just said it you know more beautifully than i could say it is that people don't want to get the binoculars out anymore the fans don't want to do that the players don't want to do it they're looking for moments where we can come together as a country and um get together behind our players and i do think the nwsl anthem aside gives an opportunity for america to root for this small league to make it i saw it last year Everybody was rooting for us to make for it. I don't care. It was commissioners and other leagues who were saying, go, Lisa, or players who were, you know, players from MLS who were rooting for our players, people who came in from tennis. We have two of the world's most incredible tennis players coming in to, to do us. So I think that the message that we have, Anthem or Not, is we can be a league and a an organization that people root for, and that brings Americans and the world together. Yeah. So I hope that we can continue to be that this year because our country needs it. I think absolutely outside of the anthem, that's very clear. The players
0: wearing Black Lives Matter shirts, speaking up, yeah. the investment in the community, the engagement across sports, the NWSL absolutely can be representative of those moments of bringing people together from disparate backgrounds and everything else. The issue with the anthem is all of the stuff that it's fraught with then muddies that so that you could do all those other things perfectly and really have meaningful, tough conversations in locker rooms and in meeting rooms and then come out and have that one thing be the thing that everybody remembers and talks about instead of all the other hard work. So. Anyway, as it is happening across all the other sports, a conversation still to be had as as ideas about it evolve and as people um, say their piece. Uh, last quick one for you. I know you mentioned Paul Tagliabue. Are there other leaders that you are particularly inspired by or that you pick their brains uh, for advice or or anything like that?
1: Oh, all the time. I am a learner by nature. So I'm talking to the the most unusual people I talk to all the time about, what do you think about this? Because I think it makes me a better leader. So um, Kathy at the WNBA, I remember texting her and talking to her a lot as we were trying to figure out the bubble together, particularly the medical protocols and how to manage moms in the bubble. Like that was, that was the thing we were both concerned about. Um, Adam Silver, he's been a long time friend and I kind of talked to him. Don Garber has been really so incredibly supportive and helpful. Uh, I, I, I mean, I kind of knew him before because we worked um together not together at the same time at the NFL but we, you know we've had kind of a shared history with that and he worked a little bit at the USOPC but he's just been enormously helpful because I didn't have the soccer knowledge coming in and John was really helpful with me saying you know just giving me look here you, this is something you should focus on you can you know helping me prioritize helping explain things and certainly helping with this MLS team but also I found him to be very respectful um, he's not someone that does it with a heavy hand. He's very respectful that we want to be an independent, self-sustaining league, and that's really important. But also other people in business, sponsors, um, Mark Pritchard at uh, p and I have to give him a shout out. He's one of the smartest marketers on the planet. And journalists, like I talked to Raj Bennett the other week and yeah. asked him a couple questions. And of course, my, 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 the players, that's the one thing I haven't done is I haven't really gotten to know many of the players yet. I've had a couple conversations, but COVID has really hampered that. So I think the players, current and former, are kind of someone that I want to develop relationships with as we go forward. And the PA. It's so hard
0: for everything over Zoom, even if you're trying your best to really so and, and we talk about that a lot in the sports world as journalists, right? So many of the conversations that just happen when you're waiting around during BP or for a game to start are the places where you establish relationships and communication and all of that is gone in zooms where you know you're raising your hand and you get your one question and the athlete is gone so um all right well before i let you go and i appreciate the time i know you're super busy you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects Didn't expect a kind of spanish inquisition
1: <laughs> nobody
0: expects the spanish inquisition it's the speed round spanish inquisition number one your current job is canceled. You can't do anything relating to women's soccer or being a commissioner. What job do you do? I
1: want to be a gardener. Oh, vegetables, I want to flowers be or both?
0: Both. Love it. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: uh, pulling off the challenge cup that first day. <laughs> That's it. That's that. That was it. You were one of those Making
0: people challenge. I was talking about as I was doing three hours of radio every night. And I kept finding myself saying over and over, I do not envy the people in charge. As I no. was saying, I see this side. I see this side. I understand why people are doing nothing. I understand why they're doing this. So you were one of those people. Um, number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Golf. Yes. Yes. Coming back to golf. (laughs) Uh, Number four, what current celebrity in music or TV or politics or whatever would you most want to be your best friend?
1: Uh, I would kind of really like to meet Chance the Rapper. Oh, well, you're in luck. Because, you know, one of my co-owners with the Red Stars is his manager. Well, I I kind of followed him early on. I really like his music. My kids um, do it. But... I think that's in music, but I'm a huge podcast nerd. And you kind of referred to New York Public Radio. Yeah. It's, I love a big podcast. So I got the chance to work with one of my favorite podcast hosts in the world. His name is, is Jad Abimrod. He's the yeah. host of Radio Lab and yeah. Latif Nasser, who's one of the co hosts now. So I have to say, I did realize my dream when we did together. I worked, I didn't do anything um, with the journalism part of it, but I supported him for marketing and everything. And we did the Dolly Parton series. What? Which,
0: yes i was just gonna say isn't that the guy from dolly parton's america one of the best podcast series i've ever listened to ever
1: ever and i worked with him on that and that was like a career high is working with jad um on the dolly parton podcast okay
0: can we really quickly though talk about how can you ask jad to get that woman who i believe was from africa who sang her version of wildflowers
1: (gasps) i want that as a single I agree. Do you know that Jad is an, an incredible trained musician and Radio Lab? they do all their own music for yeah. the show.
0: Okay. If you guys haven't listened to this, and I am a big Dolly Parton fan now, but not the kind of person that thought I would listen to a podcast about Dolly Parton. It's not even necessarily really just about her. It's about so many other things, but such a beautiful idea that this woman in this area of Africa would find meaning in this song that she wrote about Appalachia and I don't, just... Blew my mind, and I immediately bought the single, but I wanted her version because it was so gorgeous. Um, okay, number five, what's your
1: biggest, most meaningless
0: pet peeve? Uh,
1: people who don't wear masks, <laughs> that's wear... a very good one. I also, mean like it. the whole state of Texas now, apparently, just wear I the mask. Can't. I can't, <laughs> I know it's a little hard to breathe, but wear the mask. Uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm yeah. gonna, I'm telling you, I haven't had. I've been wearing a mask faithfully since this started faithfully and I have kept safe. I've kept my, my family safe, my friends safe. Please wear the mask. Yeah, I agree. Not meaningless though. That's a big one. Uh, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? There's too many to count. Um, (laughs) And to any child that's listening to this right now, I think, I've done many embarrassing things, but one time I showed up to pick up my daughter at a sixth grade middle school dance in full foul weather gear. Cause there was a Nor'easter going on and I was the idiot mom. And I think not only was I embarrassed, but she was humiliated, abjectly <laughs> humiliated. Uh, She's never forgiven me. Well, she will eventually
0: she will. In <laughs> fact, she'll apologize for making you feel bad about, you know, being a good mom who came to pick her up and you were prepared. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
1: That's a great one. I think that I would like to be able to photograph things better. I'm not a good and it's such a visual world where your phone yeah. is your record of of now preserving your life and telling your life. I notice people who are incredibly beautiful photographers now and I would love to learn that skill. I bet you there's a master class in that where you could do I bet one, there is i wonder who would teach one it
0: one hour or two just to get the basics of and you know there's so many interesting things about composition to actually be off center don't always center everything and don't make everything this obvious and you know
1: yeah but like uh, i'll tell you what i follow tom hanks i used to follow him i don't follow him as much anymore on um instagram yeah. and he would photograph lost gloves yeah that was his thing Yeah, like, what a great idea. you got to find your thing. thing. i got to find a thing to be good at.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Any band,
0: Alive or Dead, can play your next party. Who is it? Uh, Wouldn't it always be Bruce Springsteen? Oh, good answer. That would be a pretty good one. Uh,
1: Number nine, what do you consider your biggest failure? Uh, Ooh, that's a hard one. I think that... um, I, that's a hard one. I don't even know if I have a biggest failure. I have a series of a lot of failures that I don't think a lot about,
3: yeah.
1: because I just go, okay, that happened. Now, what do I do to move on? So it's not, I don't really think about the failures so much as, okay, how do I go from there to here? And, and, you know, everybody has failures every day. I think a lot of successful people have that answer. I think it's part of the reason they're successful
0: is they don't get caught up on or remember those things. They figure out what they need to learn from them and then yeah. they move on. Um, finally, what three individual words would you most hope
1: people would use to describe you? Um, accessible. Um, humble. And. um like gritty and resilient. Mm, okay, it's four words, but I'll give it
0: to you. I'll give it to you, or we'll make it one word: resilient. Resilient. I would like <laughs> to be a
1: resilient. There you commissioner. go. <laughs> um, and <laughs> finally,
0: good. who should I have on the podcast? Who do you think is someone interesting from any field, any background? Jad. Yeah, I
1: mean, duh. Now that we know that you know him, you're totally setting me up to talk to him because I would talk. He is an amazing person to interview. So I think you should get Jad on the podcast, or even better, his co-host, Latif Nasser, who's from Canada, is an amazing sports storyteller. He right. did a podcast about the NHL All-Star Game that's just mo- one of the most brilliant stories of sports. So uh, any one of the radio lab hosts, and I will get, I'll get that get for you, And Sarah. Dolly Parton,
0: which you'll also get me.
1: Yeah, that, mine, that one, she's... she's Amazing. (laughs) She's busy uh,
0: helping create vaccines and being the best. Um, Lisa, this was so fun. Uh, Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to all the fun stuff that's uh, yet to come with the with the NWSL. All
1: right. Thanks, Sarah. And we'll see you around. That's what
3: she said.
0: Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this week, my one more thing is actually two more things. This is where I rant or rave. Sometimes I complain about something. Sometimes I tell you something to read or something to listen to. And uh, the first of my two things this week, Emmy Award winning sportscaster Susie Schuster called me the other day after hearing my podcast with Leslie Visser and shared the best stories about just how influential and fun Leslie was back when she was just starting out in the biz. Um, So here's a little message from Susie.
3: Hey there, this is Susie Schuster, also known as the reason why Sarah Spain is the biggest star in the world. Just saying, taking all credit for that. I am a former ABC sports reporter, Fox Sports, TNT, you name it. And I met Leslie Visser when I was a senior in college. I was her intern at the Final Four in Charlotte, North Carolina for CBS my senior year at Columbia. And Leslie immediately took me under her wing. I was a Boston kid. She'd worked for the Globe for years and years, and so we had that in common. And I was the lowly intern, she didn't care. She made sure that I was by her side, watched her do interviews, answered any questions I had. And once um, that was over, she kept in touch with me and invited me to all of her girls nights as you would call them. Leslie is the queen of all of the female sports reporters out there and she made a point of taking time to do events so that we would bond together and be part of a greater community because when she came into the business, there wasn't a community of women at all. She would borrow the Madden Cruiser from John Madden and we would get on the cruiser and cruise around Manhattan, cocktails and you name it, bar hopping, having the greatest time and it was just her way of of giving us a sense of community and home. When I got my first on-air job at Fox Sports Net in 2000, I received a package in the mail, and inside of it was a red blazer. I believe it was a dkny red blazer, game worn at that. And the note inside said, "It's your time now. Wear it with pride, Leslie." she had taken the time to send me one of her blazers because of course you know it was a power blazer to wear red on the sidelines you stood out you already stood out because you were a woman but to wear that red blazer was a real sign of power when I became more established and women started coming to me for advice after years at Fox and ABC Sports etc I one day gave that blazer to another woman coming up she had been an intern of mine I had spoken to her class at USC many times and she had gotten her first job on the air in Santa Barbara and I took out that same red blazer and I handed it to her and I said, it's your time, wear it with pride. And she did her very first broadcast. She wore it on the air. And it all started from Leslie. So uh, I'm grateful that I was exposed to the great Leslie Besser that she took me under her wing and she taught me the importance of taking women coming up through broadcast and making them feel seen and heard and part of a greater community.
0: And I want to say props to Susie for paying it forward because when I took a class at UCLA Extension, she came to speak in the class. I emailed her afterwards. She invited me to her house to talk about making my way in the industry, give me advice. And I have to say, 22 or so or 23 year old me. Could not have felt cooler and more adult than I did sitting in Susie and Rich Eisen's house drinking wine and getting career advice. It was so very cool of her. And I love that she and Leslie and so many other women in business are modeling that kind of behavior. Secondly, uh, that's what she read for this week. Read Untamed. Full stop. I've had the author Glennon Doyle on the podcast twice. I've read excerpts from the book here. I cannot scream it loudly enough from the rooftops that both men and women should read it. It ties back to what I said at the top, challenging the norms, understanding preconditioning, recognizing implicit bias, racial bias, gender bias, wealth bias, all the ways the system is actually built to keep marginalized people from achieving power, to keep them from getting generational wealth, equality and equity. It is a feature, not a bug. And until we're honest about that and push back on it, it's not going to change. The people who have been in power want to stay that way. They're not going to give it up without a fight. So read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Learn and get to fighting. She writes in the book, and this is specifically in the book about homophobia, transphobia, labels, but it applies to everything. Quote, progress is just perpetually undoing our no longer true enough systems in order to create new ones that more closely fit people as they really are. People aren't changing after all. It's just that for the first time, there's enough freedom for people to stop changing who they are. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got questions, suggestions, or more. And go to iTunes or the podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said. Rate five stars, please, and give me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She
3: Said.